Hey, welcome back again, everyone. It is great to have you with us. Um, and it's great to have you with us in this series. Um, so if you are here for the first time, uh, in the past couple of weeks, we have jumped into a series that we've called Witness, which is all about evangelism. How do we, how do we share our faith? How do we talk about Jesus with the people around us? How do we share the gospel in our current culture? So a couple of weeks ago, we just had an open conversation with a few of us on, uh, on lockdown around the difficulties and the complications around it. And then last week, um, I just kind of shared some of the tensions that arise in it. And um, my hope was that we can have confidence in who Jesus is. As a person, you may not have all the answers. When it comes to sharing your faith, you may feel incredibly nervous or scared to do something like that, like you're not qualified. And my hope of the message last week was just trying to remind you that at the core of what we're doing, just like everything else we believe, is that at the heart of it, this is God's work. This is something that God is doing. And our job is to be as faithful, pointing out who God is and what he's doing as we can. And I think we can have confidence that God is working in our world. So with that, let me pray and we can continue on that discussion today. Let's pray together. Yeah, Jesus, I thank you for your presence with us. God, I know that uh, evangelism can be a complicated topic. It can have lots of different elements around it. Um, Jesus, I pray that your spirit will break through and speak to us. Help us to have confidence to know that you're working in our world. And just as the story that we heard today, you are still meeting with people. You're still transforming lives. And I pray that we can be as faithful to what you've called us to as we can. In your name, I pray. Amen. All right. So, can I be honest with you guys? I'm going to start this week with a, a bit of blaring honesty, ruthless honesty. This series, as I've been working on it for like the past month or so, I think might be the most difficult preaching series I've ever had to prep for. And I preached through Revelation, and I felt that was easier than this, which is saying something, right? Um, I genuinely have struggled with this, and which is ironic because part of my history, before I was a pastor, I worked with a missions organization called Youth with a Mission, and my role in Youth with a Mission is that I would go around to churches and different YM schools, and I would teach people how to share their faith. Like, literally, I was on a team called the Evangelism Team. Like, that was my job. So I thought, if I could come here, I'd just be able to take all the things I learned and been like, here, do these things, and go on, be good witnesses, do your thing. And, and I've struggled with that. You know, because look, the challenge is when it comes to like witnessing and speaking the gospel, sharing our faith is one of the most basic core elements of following Jesus. I mean, in Matthew, at the end of his gospel, Jesus looks at his disciples and he gives them this task, this commission. He says to them, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So for 2,000 years, for those who were like committed followers of Jesus, sharing our faith with others, helping introduce Jesus to other people has been utterly central to our form of faith, utterly central to what it means to follow Jesus. And so there's, on one sense, I could have really easily gotten up here and been like, Matthew 28, 19, 
do it. That's what Jesus says. Go out and do it. If you're not doing it, try harder. Do it better because that's what God wants you to do. And if you're not doing it, Jesus is looking at you and he's crying. So work harder and do it, right? Like I could go up and I could preach a sermon that just tells you to try harder at this. But after doing that a lot with YWAM, I'm not convinced that it brings the actual fruit that we want to see. Because if we're honest, we know that it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Particularly in today's society and today's culture. And maybe another thing I could have done is I could have gotten like a list, like here's your bullet point, here's your script, almost like a telemarketer. If you want to tell people about Jesus, take this script with you, start with this question, which is do you know where you're going to go when you die? And when they say no, boom, gospel, hit them. You know, and then read him this prayer, and if I could give you all these papers and send you on your way. But we also know it's not that simple, is it? Particularly not in today's society, in today's context, in today's culture. And the reason for that, the reason I've been wrestling is because we all know that context matters. Um, as a wise man, Ked Edkins has said to me, the message of the gospel stays the same throughout history, but the way we tell it always has to change. And our cultural context is so important. I remember this so clearly, like if you use the wrong words or the wrong language at the wrong time, it gets you into wrong places, right? Like as a Mexican, I grew up in Mexico and so I grew up speaking Spanish. And in Spanish, if you want a straw, you know, like the things you suck through that are now illegal, that no one's allowed to have anymore. Um, if you want one of those straws, the word for that is popote, which as a side note to me, I think is one of the funnest words in humanity. Quiero un popote, por favor. Like, it's, it's lovely. Un popote. But, Camila's laughing. Because Mexicans also, what I didn't know is that Mexicans use a very unique word for that. We called it popote. And so I grew up thinking everyone who spoke Spanish uses the word popote. Until one day I went to Costa Rica and I was at a Burger King. And I'm already like an insecure white kid in a Hispanic context, so I already feel insecure all the time. And so I go up to the place and like, they gave me my meal, they didn't give me a straw. So I go up and I'm like, uh, uh, perdón, me das un popote, por favor. Like, can I have a popote? And they just stare at me. What? And, oh, the fear in my heart. As a missionary kid, like, I've done something wrong. And I'm like, un popote, por favor. ¿Qué? What? And they're staring at me like I'm an idiot. And so then I'm like, well, I don't know any other word for this. This is the only word I know. I thought everyone who speaks Spanish uses the same word. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. So then I'm like, straw? Nope, that doesn't work. They're in Costa Rica. English doesn't help. So then I go, um, which now as an adult, I realize is a terrible thing to do. But as a kid, it was all I knew how to do, right? And somehow, against all mysteries of mysteries, they go, oh, idiote gringo, and they go ahead and give me, um, they give me a straw, which in Costa Rica is called a pajilla. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was called a pajilla there. I thought it was a popote. It's, they use different words in different places. And we know that if we use the wrong language in the wrong place, it makes no sense to someone. And I think one of the reasons that evangelism in our context is so difficult is because our culture is constantly changing and it's constantly moving. And particularly in New Zealand, where we live in a very secular culture, finding the language to try and communicate the gospel is increasingly difficult, isn't it? And so today, the title of the sermon is Evangelism in the Secular Age. 
how do we share our faith in a secular context? Because I think this, all of our questions, the deep-seated struggles that we have, you know, like if you're, perhaps you're an older person and you really love Jesus and you really love the gospel, but your kids or maybe your grandkids have walked away from faith. And it feels like no matter what you do, no matter what language you try to use, you keep missing them. You're trying to tell them about Jesus and it feels like you're talking over their heads or right past them. Part of the reason for that is the secular context that they grew up in, which is different from the one that you grew up in. Or for those of us who are younger, there's many of us here, and you might not want to say it out loud, but there's a lot of us that when it comes to evangelism, we don't want to do it because deep down, we feel like it's immoral. We don't know why, but it feels socially wrong to do to people. And so we know that Jesus wants us to, but then in our culture, we feel like it's an immoral thing and we shouldn't do it. And we're, I don't know if it's just you, but I know so many younger people are caught in that tension of how do I share my faith without like colonizing someone into my beliefs and my way of system thinking. And like, these are real struggles. And so what I want to do today, normally on a Sunday, what I'll spend most of my time doing is what's called exegeting scripture which is going through the text, trying to point out what's there, point out what God's doing. Today, I wanna do something a little bit different, and I wanna try my best to exegete our cultural moment, the world that we live in, give us language to understand why things are the way they are. And my hope is that if we can understand it, then we can find more faithful ways to talk about Jesus in a lovely, kind, relational way in it. Does that make sense? So that's my, that's my goal for today. I'm gonna make you think Okay, your brain may hurt. I know, it's Sundays, right? I'm not supposed to think. You're just supposed to give me my two-point sermon and walk home. Today, you're gonna think. And I don't apologize for it, all right? Are you ready? Um, one last little disclaimer. When we talk about a secular age, this is talking about usually the majority culture in New Zealand. If you come from like a Pacifica or Te Ao Māori background, this may not apply to you. Your worldview will be different from just a straight secular one. But if you are Māori, this might help give you language to understand why Pakia and majority culture works the way it does. Does that make sense? Okay? So this may not apply to everyone at all times. So today, our guide through this is a guy named Charles Taylor. Now, he's this Canadian philosopher. And in 2007, he wrote a book that is way too long, 900 pages, stupid long. Anyone who writes a book that long should have to go back and rethink their lives. But he wrote this really long book called The Secular Age. And despite its length, it's become one of the most referenced and talked about books as people are trying to understand the context and the culture that we live in, as he talks about our secular world. One author that I was reading described Charles Taylor as the first author of the 21st century that people are likely to still be talking about in the next century. So it's like a really foundational work. And what he does is he tries to work really hard to describe the world, this secular world that we live in. But the question is, when I say secular, what does that mean? We all kind of maybe have an idea of what that means. Maybe not Christian, maybe like a religious. Charles Taylor argues that one of the things that's most significant is the way that we've understood what it means to be secular has actually changed throughout history. And it's changed in really fascinating ways. And when you look at the way it's changed and the way the gospel works, it's really, really enlightening. So I'm just going to walk through that real quickly. So the first stage that he talks about is what he calls secular one. Now, this would have been the worldview of people probably about five, six hundred years ago. 
Now, if you would have talked to somebody in Europe uh, or in those Western, in England and France and Germany five, 600 years ago, they still would, if you, if you'd have said secular, they would have known what that word meant if you translate it into their language. If you go to Germany and say secular, they'll just stare at you like you said papote, so that doesn't work. But if you went to England and used that word, they would have understood it, but very differently from how we understood it. 500 years ago, if you talked about the secular, for them, the world was divided between sacred places and secular or earthly places, holy places and impure places, places where God's spirit was living and dwelling and working in the world, and then places that are just more human, natural. And in this worldview, everything was spiritual. The idea that God was not even there just didn't cross anyone's mind. Um, in fact, there's a statue of uh, a guy in Italy, I can't remember his name, but he's got the statue in Venice where his title says, here lies Giuseppe. I don't think that's his name, but that sounds Italian, right? Uh, here stands Giuseppe, the only unbeliever of his generation, right? Can you imagine if someone made an, a statue to every unbeliever in New Zealand? Like that'd be like, what, most of our country, like here's everyone. But back then, to think that God or the spiritual didn't exist was utterly foreign. So instead, their worldview circled around holy spaces and profane spaces. So if you went into a cathedral, the cathedral itself was holy. The building itself was transcendent. And the church, one of the biggest things that they all wanted was relics. They wanted relics from like history. So they wanted bones of apostles or the crown of Jesus or the nails that were in his hand. And usually the crown of Jesus ended up in three different cathedrals throughout Europe because everybody wanted it, right? But that mattered to them because things themselves carried power. And so they walked in. And so if you were a farmer and you understood yourself as secular, not as unbelieving, but as dirty, as tainted, as earthly, and we can tell how this is different because of the issue that they had around communion. So 500 years ago, they would have had communion. And now, nowadays we take it and we forget it and we go home. One of the biggest issues that pastors had 500 years ago with communion is that when people came to take communion, they were taking like the fancy wafer, they were taking it in their hands and then hiding it in their pockets. And then when they went home, they were giving the sacred wafer to their pigs or they were sprinkling it over their fields because they believed it had power. And so one of the issues that they had, all the pastors were like, well, how do we get these people to take it now? And so then they instituted the policy where if you're Catholic and you went in, you had to do that weird thing where you're like a toddler, you go up to the priest and your hands behind your back, you have to, and they put it on your tongue. You don't even touch it because it's so holy. You might burn up into flames if you touch this. And then people have to eat it. And then they have to go, and show the priest that they ate it again. Can you imagine that nowadays? But what's fascinating, that was the way the world worked back then. And when you hear writers and people talk about sharing the gospel, do you know one of the biggest things, the ways that they share it? They talk about the blood of Jesus that purifies us. The blood of Jesus that casts back the work of the enemy and the darkness. So for average people who thought they were tainted and earthly, the blood of Jesus purifies them and washes them and makes them whole. So a lot of our theology and songs come from our understanding of secular at that time. Does that make sense? We don't think like that at all nowadays, do we? And I know we don't think that because multiple times I have made a joke about having to cast the demons out of our sound system. 
You know, like when we've had issues, I'm like, that's all right, I've cast the demons out. I've never gotten a single one of you write me an angry email about that phrase. (laughs) Not a single one of you wrote me and said, Colin, why on earth would you mention the name of demons in a holy place like this? You're going to invite the profane into the sacred. Doesn't even bother us. We're like, (laughs) joke, demons. (laughs) Let's move on, right? So that was secular one. So when people shared the gospel back then, they talked about purifying. The blood of Jesus that makes you holy and restores you. Does that make sense for that time? What happens after that is you get a shift into secular two. And before you think secular one is the best and we should all go back there, the, if you want to think of the most modern version, if you're trying to think of a modern version of secular one, the best way to think about it probably is a TV show called The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really dark. It's really depressing. America has been taken over by like a religious fundamentalist group and everything in their structure is built around religion. When you greet someone at the supermarket, it's may he open under his eye. Their whole world revolves around a liturgy and it's kind of scary. So each one of these stages, it's not like we have to go back there. It's just about understanding it and how we be faithful in the midst of that. Does that make sense? All right. It's going to get more complicated, but hopefully we'll get there. After secular one, Charles Taylor says we shift into a new mode, which he calls secular two. So secular one was like the holy versus the unholy. Now in secular two, you have the religious space versus the non-religious space. Think of like America, they have the separation of church and state where like the state can't do anything religious because it's like an overstatement. And here we have a lot of those conversations. This is what a lot of us would be familiar with when we say secular, right? It's a place that is not religious. And you find that shift that happens is they now say, well, okay, The religious space is over here. All you religious people want to do your private thing. If you choose to be a part of that, if you make that your will and you choose to be a part of that space, then fine. Go be a part of it. But you can't force everyone else in this space to be a part of your space. And we try to draw this hard line between the religious space and the a-religious or the non-religious space. And what Charles Taylor says that results in is it almost becomes a tug of war for people's commitments. Religious space and non-religious space are like, there's only so much of the pie, and both spaces are fighting for as much of it as they can get. And so each space, so the non-religious, they are terrified when people show up and try and do prayer in schools, right? Because this is our space. You're interrogating our space. The Bible in schools debate here in New Zealand is a classic one of like, but this is our space, this is a secular space, you can't invade our space. While the Christians, we feel really good about Bible in schools because we're like, yeah, we're advancing our space, our space is getting bigger. And it becomes this tug of war of we're trying to win each other over into that different kind of world. And so these two are fully separate, religious, non-religious. And what you find in secular two is that the most important focus, if in secular one people were worried about being tainted or dirty or unholy, in secular two, the most important thing is human will. Where do you choose to belong? What will you believe? What are you gonna believe about this? How are you gonna choose to live your life? And you see that really clearly. Jonathan Edwards was a classic person as the world shifted into secular two, Jonathan Edwards, really famous revivalist in the UK, became like the main proponent of a theology called um, Arminianism, which is God saves when we choose to receive it. And then you get the sinner's prayer, I choose to receive God as my Lord and Savior, and now I choose 
to identify with this group and I choose to be a part of this religious establishment. While on the opposite is true. And so you find that in a lot of the evangelism techniques during that time. Apologetics, no one in the world would have thought of apologetics in Secular One. It makes no sense. Why are you trying to logic someone in the kingdom? You are dirty and profane. You just need to be cleansed. But in Secular Two, getting people to believe is utterly important. So I've got to give you all the right answers. And if I can convince you to believe that this is true, then you'll believe and live in my space. And the challenge is in Secular Two, it's very combative. And I think this is where a lot of us get nervous when it comes to evangelism because it feels like we're fighting for space with our neighbors. And a lot of us just aren't confrontational, right? Like if someone pays us the wrong amount of money in the store, we'll be like, that's fine. I didn't need those $10 anyway. So much less trying to challenge them on matters of faith and um, like future. Yeah, right belief is utterly important in Secular 2. You got to believe the right things. Secular one, that didn't matter so much. People believed all kinds of crazy stuff. As long as you were in here in the holy place, you were fine. Secular two, belief is utterly important. Um, Andrew Root, who does some really good work on this, talking about secular two, if you could talk about the anxieties that secular two brings in Christian communities, he says it this way. The anxiety that seems to keep church people up at night is not, will our children ever have experiences of the eternal in time, but... It's, will we lose our children to the secular space and therefore find our religious institutions losing ground? This is the anxiety that plagues so much of the church and I've been to 10,000 conferences where this is the primary fear that we're talking about. Our church is one generation away from death. The secular space is overwhelming us. We're gonna lose all of our space. Our young people aren't gonna be in here. And then you get churches that do crazy strategies because it's competing for spaces. Churches do crazy strategies just to try and keep young people in there. So they look out and they say, okay, what are, the, what are those hippers, whippersnappers doing? And okay, well, they like tech. Young people like tech. All right, the secular space is winning them with tech. So what we need to do as a church is we need more tech in our church. We need better sound systems. We need better musicians. We need better lights. Our concerts on Sunday need to be better than their concerts than when they go see ACDC. And then we will win them to our space. Amen. They'll be a part of our community. You know, do, do you see how that works out? In Secular 2, we're terrified of losing ground and we'll do whatever we can to keep them over here. What Charles Taylor says is that a lot of us have lived in this Secular 2 mindset, but we don't realize is that as secular two battles have happened in our world, we've shifted to a new secular and many of us have not even realized it yet. He says that now in our secular age, we've moved to what he calls secular stage three. And if secular one, the holy space and the profane space, secular two was the religious space versus the non-religious space, in secular three, the idea that there is even any transcendent space anywhere is really hard to believe. Because in secular two is about winning people's wills. And so the natural conclusion to that is, well, it's just about what you believe. Secular three, the idea that God breaks in, that a personal supernatural being, that a risen human in the form of Jesus who lives and reigns in heaven is interacting with our world and actually changing things, in our society is becoming increasingly just unbelievable. And so in Secular 3, 
when they think of religion, they don't think of it in terms of God acting in people's lives and transforming them. In secular three, it's more about this is your personal values. This is your personal understanding. This is your identity that you are choosing to live out. It has nothing to do, they don't even think about whether God's actually interacted with your life. And if you share stories, often the way that they'll say it is, okay, yeah, that's cool, it's good for you. I mean, in their head, they'll probably be like, okay, you had an experience with God? Probably, you know, human beings can believe a lot of things if we want to. It's probably just your own heart, your own mind speaking to you. You probably grew up in a Christian cultural context, so you were predisposed to believe that something supernatural is speaking to you because that's the culture that you live in. But it's probably just a product of our own biochemistry. Uh, we're trying to force our own meaning making. And if that's good for you, that's fine. Good for you. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean jack for me. Because the idea that God's actually a person in meeting with us, it doesn't even come into it. So we, he says that we live in secular three, what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. Can you say the imminent frame? Do you feel a little bit more intelligent now after saying that? Feels good, eh? Your task this week is if you wanna be impressive at like a party, just be like, oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, the imminent frame, mm-hmm, yeah, uh. Oh, the imminent frame, you'll be very smart and people will like you in your party. What Charles Taylor means by the imminent frame is he talks about it's the frame of our worldview. And imminent means close, which means the worldview that we live in, for most of us in a secular New Zealand context, our worldview does not have any space for the supernatural or for the transcendent. Everything is here and now. Everything is about what's happening right now. Can you relate to that? Have you, have you feel that often when you hear it talked on conversation or when people talk about religion, it's all about personal values, personal identification. And so it gets really, really challenging. But the main thing as well is that if God is not a transcendent being who actually comes and interacts with us, but God's just a belief system, a value system you identify with, then he, Charles Taylor says, then every believer in the modern secular age is constantly, every belief is fragile. Every believer is plagued by doubt because we know that other people are living their lives in different ways. And if everything is imminent, if there's no transcendent interaction, then maybe my entire faith system is actually just based on my own head, what I wanna believe, my value systems, and maybe my value systems aren't as right as your value systems. Every person you talk to says, well, how do you know that that's true for you when Muslims and Buddhists will believe something else completely different? And he says one of the greatest challenges is that every believer will constantly be plagued by doubt. In many ways, the great prayer of our age could be from Mark, where the Father says, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief right? Do you relate to that? When I first read these things, it was like I felt it in my bones. I was like, this makes sense for so many of the young people I talk to, constantly plagued by doubt. And we don't know what to do about it because in the imminent frame, everything is fragile. And so this is part of the reason why if you are trying to, if your kid or your grandkid has walked away from faith, and you're trying to talk to them about it and you feel like you're getting nowhere, that's because there's a breakdown in worldviews happening. You're trying to talk about a transcendent God that wants to meet with them and wants to respond and work in their lives. And often what they're very likely to be hearing is, this is your identity. These are your value systems. This is what you think, but I'm a different person than you. I'm a different individual and I'm not gonna take on your value systems, mom. 
or dad or grandpa. They're old, they're antiquated. I don't wanna believe in those same things that you believe in. It's all about choice, personal identification. Or if you're younger and you feel really anxious about evangelism and it feels inherently wrong, that's because in the imminent frame, it feels wrong to put your value system upon someone else. If you do that, it's going to always be fake for them. And it feels wrong. And so, so many young people are terrified of doing evangelism because we're locked in the imminent frame and everything frees fragile and we don't want to force our beliefs onto someone else. Does anyone relate with that? Yeah, right? The reason I want to share this is because if you can have language to understand it, then you can find ways to work in the midst of it. So where does this leave us? Is this just a very depressing message saying we're all screwed, nothing's going to work, and uh, every belief is failed and you're just going to doubt forever? No. Fortunately, the gospel of Jesus has worked for 2,000 years in hundreds of thousands of different cultures and different contexts because our faith, our faith is not based on just a set of beliefs. It's based on a risen person, Jesus, who we know is working in the world. That's where our hope is. And if God is still at work, then we can have faith. So what's the opening? What's the language we can use to help meet people in secular three, in the imminent frame, where there's not even space for the transcendent? Well, Charles Taylor says this. He says, everything is fragile, right? Every belief we have is plagued by doubt. And he says that for believers, but he says there's also an opportunity there. Because for every unbeliever, they too are plagued by the same doubt. You can try and live in a fully material world, but there are moments in your life where whether you like it or not, you bump into the transcendent. Moments where you bump into the holy and to the sacred. And those moments cause the very doubts that we as believers struggle with all the time. And suddenly your imminent worldview doesn't look the same. It's moments like when you hold your child for the first time. In your head, this should just be, well, okay, you could maybe say, well, this is just a biological moment where my brain is releasing dopamine in order for me to bond with my child that I might raise them and propagate our species forever. But if you've lived through that, it's a holy moment. There's something transcendent that you're bumping into. And that transcendent forces you to question, actually, is this all there is? It also happens not just through good moments. More often than not, the way that most of us bump into the transcendent is through moments of grief, weakness, and death. Just like holding your newborn son is a transcendent moment, so too, if you are by the bedside of someone who dies, if you've been there, you know it's a sacred moment. You suddenly walked into God's space. Heaven and earth have somehow intertwined if you've had your whole worldview based on something, you had a job or a relationship that you cared about deeply, and then that crumbles, there's this grief, this rawness, this opening that happens where you bump in asking, there's got to be some sort of meaning in this. There's got to be some sort of purpose in this. And those who are unbelieving bump into the transcendent and are then forced to doubt their own materialistic worldview. So what does this mean for us? How can evangelism work in secular three, I want us to finish by looking at the story of Paul and Paul's deep love for our crucified, 
Lord. See, Paul, in his story, if most of you will probably know it, Paul started off as Saul, and um, he was this super Jew, like the Jew of the Jews, and you could almost imagine him in secular too, because he was a Jew who cared about orthodoxy, right belief, his space, his kind of religious world, and then there was this cult rising up, full of crazy people who called themselves Christians, who were calling this Jewish dude who got crucified, they were saying he rose again, and is now God, that he was God with us, which to Saul felt like utter blasphemy. And so Paul, you can imagine him almost locked in that battle if you think through the secular two frame. He wanted to win his space back from those space. So he went with force and strength and might and good reasoning to force people back into his secular space. And you can imagine how often we've tried to do that with our evangelism. Yep, if we can force people through, if we can logic them in, they're gonna get in. So Paul goes forward ready to get rid of the Christians and win back space for Judaism. But on the way to Damascus, the transcendent breaks into his frame. And Jesus speaks to him. And Jesus opens with these words, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you hurting me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And it says, I am Jesus, the very one you are persecuting. And immediately he's struck blind. He cannot see, and he has to be led by the hand into Damascus. And you can imagine, for Paul, this was his moment of bumping into the transcendent. All of his worldview, his his frames that he thought worked, he bumped into the transcendent, and now all of them fell apart. And he found himself weak and vulnerable raw and hurting. And then on this space, God calls to another Christian in Damascus named Ananias. And he says to Ananias, Ananias, go and visit this Paul. I want you to minister to him. And Ananias says, Lord, isn't this the same one who's been persecuting people, been killing them, destroying people in your name? And God says, yes, on a street called Straight, I want you to go and love this person in the moment of their brokenness, in his moment of his greatest weakness, where his frame bumped into the transcendent, I want you to go. And so Ananias goes and he meets with Paul, and Ananias goes with fear and weakness and trembling. Ananias, in his weakness, meets Paul in his weakness. And it's there, in their weaknesses and their brokenness, that Paul encounters this crucified Jesus, the God who meets us in our suffering, in our pain, and the God who through pain and suffering leads us to resurrected life. And this made such a profound effect upon Paul that Paul then goes forward and whenever he's proclaiming the gospel, he starts with the crucified Jesus, the Jesus who starts in pain, the Jesus who meets us when our imminent frame is broken, The Jesus who meets us when we encounter grief and longing and sorrow. The God who comes down to us at our very worst. There, Jesus on the cross takes broken humanity. And with broken humanity, he takes it, puts it to death, and then raises up a new life after that. A resurrected, gospel-shaped world. We know this was profound because Paul, in Corinth, when he was trying to reach and share the gospel with this very secular church and community, 
How does he say it? He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about our God. So I didn't come with strength the same way he did in this first stage. I didn't come with human wisdom. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you with weakness in great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If there is a text for evangelism in our secular age, friends, this must be it. That we come and we share with people, not with strong words or with human wisdom, not trying to engage in those same battles about secular too. Do you know what the worst part of the battle of secular too was? Is that God didn't need to have any role in it. It was all about us convincing each other into each other's kingdoms. But our hope is not in human wisdom. It's not in logical arguments. Our hope is that the risen Jesus, who physically rose from the dead, still comes down and meets with you and meets with me. Our hope is that Jesus on the cross meets us in our brokenness. He takes our brokenness and doesn't let it be the end of our story. Our hope is that God meets you in your grief and your sorrow. And in that place, when you are most broken and your world has fallen apart, he says, come with me and I will show you true life. For none will receive the kingdom until we've gone through the cross. If we wanna think about evangelism in our secular age, in our secular context, I think we need to re-understand the role of God in our weakness, bringing resurrection. God in us, as we meet people in their broken frames, highlighting the work of Jesus on the cross, bringing resurrecting life to all. Let me give you a context of what this can look like because I want to try and be practical. In a couple of sermons, we're going to do some more of the practical 101s, but right now I want to work on our foundations, what worldview we're in. How does this look in practice? Say, let's take some of our oldies here. Oldies, I say that lovingly. You guys are wonderful. Uh, if you're on the more wise stage of life and um, say one of your kids has walked away from faith. <laughs> what? Maybe they've come and they've told you that they, they're now an atheist. Maybe they've told you that they're gay or they're transgender and um, they're, they're, they just can't be at church anymore. In secular too, the way we'd often wanna respond to that is, but that's not true, that's not true. Let me show you here in the gospel. No, no, God has saved you. Look, here's the arguments. We'll follow the Romans road. We are all sinners saved by faith. You need to believe these things. Or we might say, no, I need to convince you. You can't be a part of those people. You need to be a part of our people. And we work hard to try and convince them saying, no, we're Christians. In our household, we don't do this. At the very worst, some parents have run up against this frame and said, no, if you're gonna go to that frame, you can't even be in my household anymore until you choose to believe things and then you can belong in our space again. In secular three, I think that is increasingly futile. All we do is push people away because all they're hearing is you don't belong with me. I don't want your value systems. I don't have your identity. And none of that actually interacts with Jesus meeting them in that moment. But what if in secular three, rather than trying to win them over with arguments and logic, 
what if we maybe act a little bit more like Ananias? We meet them in our own weaknesses. Maybe if your kid comes up to you and says you're an atheist, rather than saying, but we're believers, you need to believe. Why are you thinking that? Why are you doubting? Believe these things. Maybe you come forward and say, wow. Um, look, son, that, I hear you. If I'm going to be really honest with you, son, that, that really scares me. Not because I don't love you or I don't trust you, but Jesus and faith has been my whole worldview, and it's been what my whole life is, and you're going to a space that I just I don't understand. And I still love you, but I may not do this right. I may not interact with you well, but I know that God still loves you. And I know that even in your doubt, Jesus wants to meet with you. And I know because God has met me in some of the places where I've been most scared and alone. I can't force you to do anything, but I just wonder if God might be working even in your doubts and in this moment, God's still here. Feel that might be a little bit different? Say you're working with a, a coworker who you're a Christian, like, oh, I don't believe all that stuff. You can try and lead with, oh, no, well, it's very reasonable. Look, here's the 10 answers in scripture that I can give you to make you convinced of this. Or we can lead with our own brokenness, our own stories. Look, I get that. I totally get that. And I probably would have thought that for a while too. But you know, there was a moment in my life where my world just came apart where all those answers just didn't work for me anymore. And I don't know how to explain it, but I was at my house and I just, I just felt God there. God met me in this weird place. And I didn't have any answers, but it was like he came and told me it was gonna be okay. And I just knew God, God was there. And so for me, my life, I can't go back because I know God met me. And I don't know, I don't want to put that on you, but I just know that God has met me in those spaces and I wonder if he can meet you in, in your spaces. Kifihad's different. We don't need to compete, I don't think, in secular three. The answer is not to be strong and powerful. It's not to force people into secular two. Like I said last week, witnessing is about pointing to the work of Jesus in your life and in other people's lives. And so as a church, if we can always get better at showing God in our own vulnerability, in our own weaknesses, that is where people will bump into God's transcendent work in our lives. Because if people experience something of God through your story, that is still equally powerful for them. If they encounter God through your testimony, your work of brokenness, and how God has met you, that still breaks into that imminent frame and it causes them to question and look at what might be. So what does this mean for us, church? I'm gonna finish it here because I'd like for us to actually be talking about this as a community. I'd like for us to be engaging, and this might not have made any sense. You might have been like, Colin, that was a load of jabberwocky. I'm out. But let's persevere and work through it because I think if we do this week and next week, if we learn the language of our culture, and we begin to lead with brokenness, with weakness, and with vulnerability, I think we'll be shocked at the power of God at how he will break through on that. Because Jesus always uses deaths to bring life. It's through the cross that we find resurrection. It's through our own griefs and deaths and brokenness and weaknesses that God transforms us into who he's called us to be. So if I can encourage us with anything, church, 
Let's talk about this. How do you share your faith? Do you resonate with any of these things? Do you find yourself in secular two? Do you find yourself in secular three? And maybe we can practice with each other getting better at highlighting our weaknesses and our vulnerability. Because if we can practice with each other, showing how God meets us, then we can get better talking about that with everybody who's outside of, our, our, outside of these church doors. Does that make sense? I'm, it might, you're, I'm, I know it's a lot. I know it's a bit brain busting, but I think it can be helpful for us. So let me close in prayer.